everybody. I'm like just a little worried about that stand with me. So I'm going to use this one. But okay. Sorry, Royce. You just play over the music. Um, I'm just going to keep shuffling things. Snow today. That was pretty cool. <laughs> Third winter is what I've been heard it's called. Third winter. Okay. I'm making the music team have to work, really work today. Okay. So... We doing okay? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> no is the answer. That's okay. It, you don't have to be doing okay. Uh, I, are you mad it's winter? Are we just angry? Hibernation style? Okay. Good. 
Okay, that's interesting. Every side has a different. Last last week, the side this side was very loaded. This week, this side is very loaded. Okay, so we'll figure this out. Okay. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister for RUF, Reform University Fellowship. That's what we're doing right here. Uh, that's what we're doing right now. Um, RUF is a Christian campus ministry, and we want to be a ministry that's for everybody. We don't want to just be for one kind of person or from, uh, and we mean that like in every sense of that word. We mean that in the sense that we don't want to be a ministry for one personal background or a few personal backgrounds, one or a few social scenes only. Uh, and we also really mean that spiritually. You should feel welcomed, and we're glad you're here no matter where you are with Jesus or Christianity. Whether you call yourself an explorer, we you call yourself a skeptic, whether you call yourself a believer or a follower, or really those terms don't mean anything to you and you'd rather throw them out or maybe you'd like to smudge in between. We're just really glad you're here and we hope you feel welcomed. And we're, um, I would love to meet you if I don't know you. I think most of you I know. But if you're new and I have not met you, please come say hello or I'll try to find you. And our interns, I'm gonna make them raise their hand again, Maddie and Eric. Oh, look at that same row. Um, different sides though, so pick, pick your poison um, or joy. Um, and then other students would love to meet you too. There's some great snacks in the back too. Um, I saw a zebra cake or three, so those were delicious. Okay, so uh, this semester in large group, we are looking at the book, the biblical book of Isaiah and the topic of who is God. Uh, a brief reminder, we've been studying this book, Isaiah, and looking at who is God uh, this semester for a few reasons. First, I'm going to quote Jen Wilkin again. I think that Isaiah um, shows you a God like no other. He does it in a manner that's like no other, and God, of course, is very unique. And we just see this real vivid portrait of who God is. And it drives us to that helpful question, which, again, I think sometimes we really do have a view of God, and we have to think about where it comes from. Are we sure we really know who God is? Are we sure we've really wrestled with this God in the scripture in Isaiah? Second, the series is perhaps one of the most autobiographical sermon series I've ever done. Um, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> honestly, it's actually really about me kind of processing my experiences this past year. and There's been a lot. Um, and also kind of processing my questions out loud with you. And I'm hoping that there's some overlap. And I'm guessing there is. Uh, for instance, uh, one question I want to talk about that we've been talking about basically all semester is, what do we do when we don't feel God's presence? Like, what do we do when we don't see God at work in our lives? And I've learned through passages like Isaiah 53 that what we do when we don't know what God is doing is we trust or trace who God is. We look at his character we look at him at a heart level, and we try to understand him better that way. So that's what we've been doing this semester. We've looked at God's character. We've looked at him being big and near, God's holiness, God's trustworthiness, God is the object of hope, God's patience, God's power, God's gentleness, God's happiness, and last week we looked at God's freedom. So I, sometimes I just do that to pat myself on the back and pat us on the back. Hey, good job getting through those things, okay? <laughs> so we're now in God's, uh, we did God's freedom last week. This week, uh, tonight we're going to look at Isaiah 53, and God is the sin bearer. Um, the God who shoulders all the sins of his people. But before we look more at God this way, uh, would you take a moment and pray with me and for us? Father, um, yeah, honestly, I, I think a lot of us are in very different spaces tonight. 
um, and uh, I could tell that maybe we're a little preoccupied and uh, in our hearts and our minds. Uh, maybe we are over familiar with a passage like Isaiah 53. Maybe it just grosses us out. Maybe uh, we've never heard it before. And I pray that you'd meet us where we are with this passage, that you'd use it once again like you've used your scriptures so many weeks before to really press into our hearts and our lives. Um, and I pray that you would really use this to encourage us, encourage me, encourage these students. And I pray that we wouldn't leave the room the same, that we'd see you, Jesus, and encounter you, living and active, uh, as more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts. We ask this, no matter where we are with you, draw near to us, Jesus. Amen. Okay. So, um, I have a very nerdy guilty pleasure. Can we just talk about that for a second? Um, permission granted. Uh, I like to read commencement speeches. Um, so, I don't like listening to them. <laughs> I don't like listening to them on the spot. I like to read the ones that kind of make it through the internet jumble after the fact. Uh, and one graduation speech I particularly appreciate is George Saunders' speech from 2013 at Syracuse University. It's called Congratulations, By the Way. Um, it's the title that the book version has. George Saunders, for those of you who don't know, uh, is a famous fiction writer. Um, and he could have just like played on his craft or played up the irony, which is what a lot of contemporary fiction writers do in those moments. But instead, Saunders actually really decided to take a risk and talk about what he most regrets in his middle-aged life. For him, it wasn't being poor from time to time, nor was it the horrible jobs he had done, um, nor was it the humiliating mistakes he had made, whether a small mistake like scoring an own goal in front of a girl that he really liked, or a large mistake like skinny dipping in a monkey poop-filled river in Sumatra and being deathly ill for seven months because he swam with his mouth open. <laughs> True story. Uh, no. What George Saunders did not regret those things the most in his life, what he regretted the most is kind of summarized by a story, which is a true story, of how he treated this girl who was new to his seventh grade class. The ways that he and others mocked her for her old ladyish blue cat's eye glasses, and the way that she chewed her hair when she was nervous, and with all that mocking, she was nervous all the time. The way he joined in sometimes to ask, does your hair taste good? or he just ignored her. Her eyes were cast down, a little gut kicked, as he describes it, trying as much as possible to disappear into the lockers. Or how he just stared at her sometimes, hanging around alone in her front yard as if afraid to leave. And then she and her family left. They moved to another city in another place. And the story ends there. And I think what Saunders is doing here is inviting us uh, through his own vulnerability to remember a time, however recent it was, when you and I were unkind. And he's asking us not to immediately excuse it. But just let, us, let it bother us for a minute. And then Saunders, in a gra his graduation ceremony at a Syracuse University, really goes for the jugular. He really goes for it. And he asks what he calls the million-dollar question. Why? What's our problem? Why aren't we kinder? Why aren't we kinder? And he moves from um, our actions of unkindness to ourselves, our lack of kindness, which, again, is really bold in that setting. 
I really appreciate it about that. And Sonner suggests that each of us is born with what he calls a series of built-in confusions. Uh, these built-in confusions are three in number. Number one, we think we're central in the story of the universe. We think we're central in the story of the universe, that our personal story is the main and most interesting story, the only story, really. The confusion number two, according to Saunders, we think we're separate from the universe. There's us, and then there's out there, all the other junk, whether it's dogs or swing sets or Nebraska or other people, okay? And then the third confusion, so we're central to the story of the universe, we're separate from the universe. The, the confusion number three, we think we're permanent. We think we're permanent. That is, death is real for you, but not for me. You may die, but I'm not going to die, at least not close to soon. And so those are sort of the three um, built-in confusions that Saunders identifies. And I would say that's a pretty strong description of, a, of the human problem, I would say. And Saunders, however, after that really strong description of the human problem, gives a fairly weak and self-admittedly rushed version of the solution. How do we actually be kind? And I would say that a lot of commencement speeches that really go for it struggle at that point. And a lot of our discussions in the public square struggle at that exact moment where we try to give the solution. Sometimes we can name the problem, but the solution is tough. And really, this is exactly where Isaiah chapter 53 can help us. You see, while Isaiah might slightly disagree with Saunders' belief that our lack of kindness comes only from inbuilt confusions in our processes of our thoughts, Saunders has done us a favor by more broadly defining sin than we're used to. Sin as an action, right? Sin is not acting kind. And sin is a state of being, not being kind. I think it's helpful. And then I, I think this is super helpful because culturally, cons consumer staples like the Harris Teeter dessert aisle or like Victoria's Secret, the entire store, they want to define sin as an indulgence, a bodily satisfaction, an enjoyable pleasure, right? You know, like committing an offense against nutri good nutrition is a sin. Or like, oh, just I'm, I'm transgressing a boring old taste. That's our definition culturally of sin. But in the words of another writer I enjoy, Francis Spofford, it helps to get concrete and out of the land of advertising to really define sin. And this is Spofford's words for what sin looks like. Uh, we need to see sin as our active inclination to break stuff, to break moods, promises, relationships we care about, and our well-being and other people's well-being as well as material objects. <laughs> or what George Saunders has simply called our chief remorse, failures of kindness. Does that make sense? That's sort of how we're defining sin. And according to verse six of our passage tonight, these consistent and besetting failures of kindness afflict all or each and every one of us, no matter what our personal background is, no matter what our religious belief is. But this is hard to believe some of you are already struggling to sit in and sit with this. Okay? It's difficult to sit in and sit with sin. It's difficult not to minimize sin like a browser window on your computer or your phone. 
it's difficult not to excuse our sins like a absence with a doctor's note. Free at last. Um, sitting in and sitting with our sinfulness is hard for, I think, difficult for two really big reasons. First, according to the New Testament letter of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, sin is deceitful. It's deceitful. Like all addictions, sin is a disease whose chief symptom is thinking that you don't have a disease. Sin is a disease whose chief symptom is thinking that you don't have a disease. You don't think you're a sinner? You probably are. Okay, do you get how that works? Okay, just like you don't think you're an alcoholic? Well, that's tough too, okay? So, so second, like George Saunders, again, other things too, not just alcohol. Second, like George Saunders found in his graduation speech, while it's hard to identify the problem of sin, I could have thrown work in there. Come on, people. Anyway, like George Saunders uh, found in his graduation speech, while it's hard to identify the problem of sin, it's even harder, perhaps, to find the solution to sin. And so I think in the meantime, we squirm under this awful, guilty load of our regrets. But the solution to sin is uniquely found in Christianity, I would argue. And I think this passage would be a brilliant argumentation of that, too. Passage of like Isaiah chapter 53, which is one of, if not the most brilliant visions of our sin solution. And it comes to us in this prophetic vision of God or Jesus as the sin bearer, the suffering servant for us. A vision even the most critical scholars put 400 years before Jesus was born. A vision that nearly the entire New Testament affirms as relating to Jesus. It's perhaps one of the big proof texts of the, New, of the Old Testament, according to the New Testament. So we're going to spend the remainder of our time unpacking this vision of Isaiah, uh, chapter 53, verses 1 through 12. And in these verses, Isaiah predicts and describes God as a sin bearer. God is a sin bearer, and Jesus has taken all of our sins upon himself on the cross, and he's removed our guilt by giving his life for our consequences. That's kind of our main point, so I'm going to say it again. God is a sin bearer, right? And he's, Jesus has taken all of our sins upon himself on the cross, roughly 2,000 years ago, and that removed our guilt by giving his life for our consequences. Okay. In order to see just how Jesus bears our sins and these consequences, including guilt, we need to deeply gaze at three different aspects of Isaiah's picture of Jesus. First, this is going to be in your handout with the verses. If you want to look there, you're welcome to. Uh, first, verses 1 through 3, we're going to look at the identity, the who of Jesus as a sin bearer. Second, that's in verses 1 through 3. Second, verses 4 through 9, we're going to look at the actions, the what of Jesus as a sin bearer. And then third, we're going to look at verses 10 through 12, the reasons and results, the why of Jesus as a sin bearer. Uh, as usual, that's all in your handout. And as usual, I know, shocking. We're going to start at the beginning. I'm going to work our way through uh, verses 1 through 3 in the identity of Jesus as a sin bearer. Our sin bearer. Okay, look with me at verse 1 of chapter 53. If you would, here Isaiah's very first question prepares us that Jesus' identity is going to be hard for us to believe. Look at that question, right? Jesus of Nazareth is going to be something that's hard to believe. Do we believe it? Jesus of Nazareth is the arm of the Lord. What does that mean? 
He is God's work of rescue. He is God incarnate. He is God's power incarnate. But verses 2 and 3, maybe for some of you that's easy to believe, for some of you that's hard. But verses 2 and 3 tell us that God's strength, that his rescue plan, his plan A, is in a person who looks extremely weak. For he grew up before him, he, the servant, Jesus, grew up before him, God the Father, like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. God's arm, his powerful servant, God himself, was a very human being. Like the rest of us, he had to grow up and mature. And he had roots, like 21 and me roots, like ancestry that you could trace. And not only is Jesus human, he seems like an ordinary guy, like even kind of a loser, right? Everything okay back there? <laughs> okay. Um, did I have like my fly down? What's going on? Are we okay? <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Huh. All right. So look, I hate when people like random people are laughing in a corner. All right. Sorry about that. Focus. <laughs> Okay, not only is Jesus human, he seems like an ordinary guy, even a kind of loser. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was, desi- he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus is a king who doesn't have a castle. He's born in a barn. Jesus is a hero who doesn't have an army or weapons or armor. He merely recruits smelly fishermen, a greedy tax collector, a zealot, and a traitor. And they walk around on foot, not horses, surrendering extra cloaks and brandishing loaves of bread. To put all this in the terms from George Saunders' opening story, we expect to esteem Jesus as this sort of leader type. He's going to break up that semicircle, that circle that goes around the bullies and the new seventh grade girl, and he's going to put a stop to it all. But Jesus, the arm of the Lord, God in the flesh, shows up as the new girl. Eyes cast down, a little gut kicked looking, looking like he's trying to disappear and hanging around alone in his front yard in Galilee as if afraid to leave. And this God should comfort us in our weaknesses. When God comes to this earth, notice that he does not come looking like a model. Okay? He's the opposite of a model. He is no movie star hunk. He does not have 14 to 18 abs. He does not have a sweet, cute boy next door, fresh farm, fresh smile. He had no beauty that we should desire him. Do you worry about your appearance? Obviously, I do. <laughs> we didn't figure that out earlier. Okay? I have stood before people who are always 18 to 22 years young for 10 years. And I get older every single year. You do the math on my insecurity. Uh, sometimes I believe the lie. If I could just fix the outside, the inside, the rest of me will get fixed. I'd feel better if I just looked better. But what does Jesus tell that angsty tween inside of us all? What does he say to us? Jesus doesn't, just shows us. 
He shows up ugly. Not to insult our vanities, but to change them. To make us kinder to ourselves and to others from the inside out. How? By taking our rejections to the cross, where his death and his resurrection transform our fleeting rejections into his eternal forgiveness. But Jesus' intentional lack of form also includes no majesty. Maybe I'm insecure about my appearance from time to time, but I'm always making up the difference in my own heart and mind, right? I'm I'm projecting a successful image. I'm performing at the top of my game, top speed, bigger, faster, stronger, you know, achieving the next big thing or impacting so many more people than I did yesterday or the day before. (laughs) And there's nothing wrong with trying to be like more kind to more people. Don't get me wrong, okay? Uh, But I just want you to see that Jesus lacked majesty. He lacked esteem. He had an ability and sometimes a desire to get lost in a crowd. He did not go into every room and work it. He did not glad hand and know everyone's name and look them straight in the eyes and give a firm handshake until someone flinched. This should be challenging for some of us here, especially when we measure our lives by strength finders. When a God came so weak. God, and look at this, Jesus used his weakness to do what our strengths can never do. To change people's lives permanently at a heart and character level. But I think you got to ask the question, how does Jesus affect that kind of permanent heart level change? So we pivot to point two, from Jesus's identity who to Jesus's actions what? Verses four through nine give us perhaps the best summary in the entire Bible for what exactly Jesus did and how it can change our very selves. So I'm going to do something a little bit different than I usually do, okay? I'm just going to kind of say the same thing three different times, <laughs> okay? Because <laughs> I just don't know how else to say it. So maybe one of these times will land. Who knows? Remember, I'm insecure. Okay. So at its simplest, <laughs> God and Jesus became not just a human being, verses 2 and 3. He became not just a human being. God also became a sinless human. He did no violence. He had no deceit in his mouth, according to verse 9. And not only did Jesus live a perfect, completely kind, righteous, and sinless life, Jesus of Nazareth voluntarily substituted himself, his perfectly kind life and record, for our imperfectly unkind life and record. And so he was punished and he was killed in our place on a cross nearly 2,000 years ago. That is the gospel. That's the central message of Christianity. So I'm going to repeat it, what I just said, but in the words of the passage this time. Surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities, our evils. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity, the evil of us all. By oppression and judgment, he has taken away, he was cut 
out off out of the land of the living stricken for the transgression for the rebellion for sin of my people and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth i'm going to again one more time same concept from a different angle this time i'm going to use the imagery of isaiah 53 god is a shepherd and he loves his little sheep so much that he became a sheep, a perfect spotless sheep, in order to bring the other sheep back home. And because we, the sheep, have ran away and are lost and can't find our way back home, he comes back to us. But he has to bring us back alive. And that shepherd turned sheep, Jesus, in order to bring us back alive, must die as a sacrificial offering. He has, he has to die as a sacrificial offering to free us and to make us the shepherds once again. I could say a lot more about these six verses, okay, without just repeating them over and over again in different paraphrases. But let me just start by assuring you that how they can actually comfort you in your pain. Look, some of you in this room are suffering a great deal right now. Something terrible. Maybe... You don't let yourself go there, or maybe you hide it really well, or maybe it's written in the creases all over your face from sleeplessness. Others of you have suffered badly in the past, and I can just tell you this, all of us are going to suffer in the future if you have not suffered deeply already. Uh, I hate to be um, Mr. Grimm, but like we're gonna have grief. This world is full of grief. This world is full of physical and emotional pain like torture. Fears that rattle your brain to brittleness and depression that fogs up all of your feelings. And the hardest part is all of that pain and all those, that, that kind of feeling of panic. The hardest thing about those things is just how lonely it feels. How like the best intentioned people, the most trained professionals, it just doesn't feel like they get you where you're near that place. They don't understand what it feels like to be you there. And the words of one woman dying of cancer, what the hell does she know? She's never had to live through anything like this. What a pointless waste of time to talk to her. But hear this, Jesus knows. He intimately gets what the pain and the suffering feel like. Listen to how Isaiah described Jesus' life and death. Bearing, sorrows, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, pierced, crushed, wounds, laid on, oppressed, afflicted, led to the slaughter, taken away, cut off from the land of the living, stricken, and the list goes on and on and on and on. This litany makes the wise pastors among us write things like this. Grief was Jesus's intimate, inseparable companion. Or there is hardly a single place in your life right now where Jesus doesn't say, sometimes with tears, yes, child, I know. But verses four through nine's graphic bloodiness probably feels like a bit too much for many of us here. All right, Sid. Somewhere between midterms and finals. It just snowed today. It was a lot. All right, I get it, Jesus. It was gross. Okay. Hurt a lot. Got it. 
But the challenge for us uh, in our offense is to believe that our failures of kindness are that deep. If verse 5 is right, that we are healed by his wounds, the depth and the gore and the breadth of Jesus' wounds, his suffering, should tell us that we actually need a lot of moral healing. More than we think. Our sins are deeper and more gory than we want to fully take in. William Shakespeare makes this point beautifully in his play Macbeth, right? At Lady Macbeth's relentless persistence and chasing after the glory of the throne, Macbeth kills King Duncan. You guys know the story probably, maybe from high school. But a mere three acts later, so maybe even I don't know how many months that is, Lady Macbeth appears in the middle of the night trying desperately to wash off King Duncan's imagined blood stains on her hands. And she says, out, damned spot, out, I say, here's the smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. And this leads Macbeth, her husband, to call for the doctor uh, to realize that guilt is, not, is actually waterproof, <laughs> that guilt is more than skin deep, that guilt is locked in mind and in heart. And so Macbeth says to the court doctor, Cure her of that. Canst thou not minister to a mind diseased? Pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow. Raise out the written troubles of the brain. And with some sweet oblivious antidote, cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart. And so what he's saying, of course, Macbeth's request is impossible. Guilt is beyond the human ability to remove. We can't remove our own guilt. We can't remove other people's guilt. And unhealed guilt can fester in our brain and in our hearts into a deep-seated sense of shame. But verses 10 through 12 of our passage assure us that our guilt can be transformed into peace because Jesus' helplessness, Jesus' condemnation, and Jesus' death did, did actually transform. He had a life after death Jesus had a righteousness. Jesus had a victory. And so we can begin to see the reason and the results, the why of Jesus in our final point tonight. Verses 10 through 11, we see the reason for Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus must make a guilt offering. Why? Because our sin, our failures in kindness, our active inclination to break things, including our relationship with God, our sin makes us guilty before God. And God in his perfect holiness and his perfect justice can only receive into his perfect presence righteous or innocent ones. So the cosmic judge has to be judged in our place. Jesus must suffer the consequences of our unkind, that our unkind behavior deserves, right? Jesus must receive justice on our behalf. God's justice. But he's got to receive the consequences of our unkind desires in order for us not to get that same unkindness right back at us. That's mercy. It gets even better. But then we also get the rewards of his perfectly kind life and relationship to God. That's grace. Do you see how that works? So again, we have to, Jesus has to suffer the consequences that we deserve, justice, in order that we get to, we don't have to suffer those consequences of our unkindness, mercy, and we get the rewards of Jesus' perfectly kind life and relationship with God, grace. 
any one of us, no matter what we've done, can be treated as if we're all good. All good with God, all good with each other, all good with the universe, all good with everything there is. In what Matthew Mead calls the utmost love, God the Father willed God the Son to be crushed, to be put to grief, so we could enjoy the infinite satisfaction of being with God. If reconciliation is the reason for our bearing, of, excuse me, if reconciliation is the reason for Jesus bearing our sins, the mutual enjoyment of this restored relationship is the result of Jesus' sin-bearing. Does that make sense? Track him. As we believe that Jesus was crushed for us, that he bore our sins on the cross, we're counted among the many of verse 12. We're described as Jesus' portion. By the way, verse 12 is poorly translated. Um, sorry, ESV. Uh, but in the Hebrew, it probably is more better translated. There's the beginning. I, God the Father, will apportion out to him, God the Son, the many, those who believe in Jesus. Okay, so I will apportion out to him the many. That's really what it's supposed to be reading. There's no spoil sharing with Jesus who was the greatest victor of all time. He's not, there's not multiple people he's divvying it up with, okay, theologically. Anyway, and really one of the chief benefits of this relationship with God the Father and the Son is that by faith our guilt and our shame have been shouldered with Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. Look, what human beings cannot do and can only make worse, God alone can do. We can't carry our own, we can't carry another person's guilt, their load. Only Jesus is divine enough to take care of that. I love the way that Swiss doctor and writer Paul Tournier puts it. The guilt that people are never able to efface in spite of sacrifices, in spite of penance, remorse, and vain regrets, God just wipes away. And people are at once freed from their past and transformed. The most fearful people become bold. The most cowardly people become courageous. The most, and then they face the judgment of their fellows without fear. That's the power of peace with God. In the God of the universe's eyes, our acceptance and our innocence is unchangeable. You can't do anything to unearn it. Do you get it? Do you know why? Because you and I didn't earn it in the first place. Jesus earned it in the first place. How could I disunearn it? Right? <laughs> How do I unmerit it? So Jesus' objective historical death on a Roman cross around 33 AD outside of the city of Jerusalem guarantees what? The objective historical removal of all of your guilt and shame. It is not a try harder proposition. It is a done, it is finished proposition. So what do we do with our regrets? How do we reach out to the girl with the blue cat's eye glasses who chews her hair when she's nervous? What if we feel like that girl all the time? Forgiveness and the power to change, these realities drop into our hearts as we rest in and we gaze at Jesus our sin bearer. Jesus Christ suffering in our place on the cross. This is all I can say. That is God's, what Matthew Mead calls his utmost love. The Jesus who will climb the walls that slowly cage you, break the chains that you can't break through. He'll never stop and he won't give in.
That's his promise in this passage. And that's the solution to regret. That's the solution to guilt. That's the solution to being made right with God. And that's the gospel, the central message of Christianity in a passage written at least 400, if not 700 years before Jesus even stepped foot on this planet. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for these words to us. Um, They're good and they're true and they're faithful. Thanks for using, once again, your crooked stick to draw a straight line. Um, Your gospel's good and true, um, and I confess that it's hard to believe. I confess that I carry around so much hidden shame and guilt that it's difficult to believe that um, this is the this is the cure, but I trust like little child that it is, and I and I pray that those here would trust like little child that it is, and that you would start to make our lives look different as a result of that. Um, I'm thankful for the ways that you've freed us already, the ways that you've emboldened us already, and I pray that you continue to do that. Um, in Jesus' name, uh, you're kind. In Jesus' name, you're good. In Jesus' name. Um, Thank you. Amen.